The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous supporters. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode 141. One day, I shall come back. That's it. I've been renewed. It's when a Time Lord's body wears out, he regenerates. I'm a Time Lord. I'm not a human being. I walk in eternity. Bravehearty. Change, my dear. And it seems on a moment too soon. Unlimited vice pudding! Position. Wearing a bit thin. Fantastic. Allons-y! I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Should be fine. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the seventh Doctor story called Dragonfire. Uh, joining me today on the panel is Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Yeah, and Father Corey is, uh, he's not on assignment. He's not on retreat. He's uh, cut off from us. We have, we have uh, do- uh, Father Corey separation. Uh, his uh, yeah. internet is down. He's so, so modern natural disaster. This is what happens when you live out in you know the middle of uh, Montana. Your internet goes down and you're cut off from civilization. And that's where Father Corey is. And uh, so hopefully he'll, he'll he plans to be back, uh, of course, next week. But uh, yeah, we, he told us to carry on, and we will. So uh, this is for you, folks. Uh, also, uh, as our, we try to ask you before we start the program, please, if you get a chance, if you enjoy this program, write a review on Apple Podcasts, share the podcast with your friends, and that helps us grow this community of Doctor Who fans that listen to this program. And we, we have these great interactions. I love interacting with the listeners uh, through social media and on our website and email, and uh, we love to make these for you. And the only way we can get the news out about the, this, this podcast is through you. We don't have a giant budget for uh, advertising. You are our means of connecting with other people. And we do greatly appreciate it. Not only do we not have a giant budget for advertising, yes. we don't have a budget for advertising. I should say, yeah, to be more accurate, the, 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 the budget is zero. So we do appreciate that. Uh, all right. So let's talk about this episode, uh, this, this story, this serial from Doctor Who. It's the seventh Doctor, uh, Sylvester McCoy. It aired in November of 1987, and it, is, it was three parts, uh, three 25-minute episodes. Which makes it nice and tight for the year. I yeah. mean, normally it's even tighter than a four-parter. Yeah, yes. It, usually uh, there, there's a little bit of padding with lots of running around. There's still a bit, little running around that happens, mm-hmm. but there's not as much padding in this, I noticed. So that, that was an interesting uh, uh, aspect of it. Uh, so we're still in the, that first... Oh, go ahead. You were going to say right. something. Right. I was that. just going to say the same thing. This is the final story in Sylvester yes. McCoy's first season as the Doctor. Right. And this wasn't... He was... Was this a complete season for him? Did he... Yes. Yeah. He came on in Mark the, of the Ronnie. Yeah. Um, and as re- even playing Colin Baker briefly. <laughs> yes. And, and then, uh, then he ran through the rest of the series. He, Mel has been his companion all this time. And so this is Mel's departure and right. the introduction of the next companion, Ace. And this was only four stories in this season. I mean, so, yeah. So There's, two four parters and two three parters. Yeah, we're getting close to cancellation for the show. 
Uh, We're like two seasons out from cancellation. So at this point, the BBC had brought the series back from a hiatus of, you know, like 18 months or something. Right. And fired Colin Baker and they're it but they're not getting the big monster huge seasons they used to. And uh, the other interesting aspect of this season is it was the first season since season seven. So this is season twenty four, the first season since season seventeen to not feature the master at all. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting. In fact, we and we won't see the master again. Well, we'll see him with uh uh the eighth doctor. We'll also see him late. He's in the final story of Sylvester right. McCoy. I know that off the top of my head. He's in Survival, which is okay. the one with the cheetah people. Oh, right, 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 right. I can't wait to see that. That should be interesting. <laughs> We've talked about that one before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then we, t- we his companions to this, we said, are Mel, who's been with him for a while, and a new companion, Ace, which well, I'm sure we'll talk about as we as we go. Yeah. Um, and there's also uh, the appearance of a semi-regular character or someone they've met before who we'll also talk about called Sabalom Glitz. Glitz, yeah. This is his third and final appearance. Okay. He's uh, sort of a poor man's Harry Mudd. And he's uh, very much like Harry Mudd. Right. Yes. Yes. There's he is he is looks even looks like Harry Mudd in some ways. Yeah. I, I think he was meant to sort of be Han Solo, but he came <laughs> off as Harry Mudd. <laughs> that is an interesting contrast, yes. Yeah. By the uh, way, speaking of the way he looks, he yeah. has the most and I the weirdest sideburns I have ever seen. I mean, oh, you know, I'm like on Star see. Trek, they they gave all the men, these weird pointy sideburns to communicate that this yeah. is the future. So it's not like 20th century hair fashion. Yeah. And, and here Sablom glitz. I mean, he's got a beard, but the sideburns of the beard, he has these horizontal oh, cuts yeah. in. It's like, as you can see the, these horizontal patches of skin. So it's like got little horizontal tuft sideburns. And I'm thinking, I don't know if you could really take a you know uh a electric shaver and cut those that way i'm thinking those may be an applique but it isn't effective i mean i've never seen anything like that in real life so it okay. definitely says this is the future or something well not only is it possible i've actually seen that there is really? okay. there is a bit of a fashion in some circles for that sort of thing uh not not in my <laughs> i like my beard whole as i can get it uh although i've got the, the a bit of patchiness but uh yeah, but I've seen it. I've seen it. It's okay, a, it, it, it's, I think Sablon Glitz is actually might be a hipster, uh, the original hipster. Could okay, be. O G hipster of the future. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, one interesting thing to point out is that Ray from Delta and the Bannerman. We talked about this during Delta and the Bannerman. Yeah, she was supposed to become a companion, uh, the travel with the Doctor, but right. then they decided to go with Ace instead, and Ace is a lot like Ray, although a little mm-hmm. younger. You know who, since we're talking about this at this point anyway, you know who Ace is also a lot like is Rose. Ace yeah. is very much like Rose. She's from the greater London area. She's from, you know, the 20th, 21st century. She's a young woman. She's lower class. And she's going on these adventures. And she's got this same kind of somewhat brash personality and stuff. Right. Um, and people have noted that, you know, as you, you can really see the transition from classic era who to modern who beginning at the end of Sylvester McCoy and going through the 1996 TV movie and then the first season of Christopher Eccleston, we've got a progression here that is the show's clearly transitioning mm. and and Ace is really like a proto-Rose. She's a little more 
a little more violent. Rose doesn't use nitro nine, but <laughs> um, which is uh, a chemical of Ace's own invention that is described right. as nitroglycerin, but with a little more wallop. And um, she's and a little so, Wesley Crusher too in that. You know, if you from Star Trek, a in little that, bit. But, she's mechanically, scientifically inclined. A little pre, uh, yeah. She's a prodigy, a prodigy. Bit. yeah, yeah. In, in chemistry, she's passed like her chemistry A level and so forth. Yeah. Um. Recently, just this weekend, I, uh, I, I, someone sent me a link on Facebook, and I discovered this channel called Sycorax Rocks on, mm-hmm. um, on uh, YouTube, and uh, the what they'd sent me was a link to a song. Sycorax Rock makes music videos about Doctor Who. And they had sent me a link to a video. They're doing a series of 13 songs for 13 doctors. And they have, uh, like, for the for the sixth doctor, it's One Night on Varos instead of One <laughs> Night in Bangkok. Yes. And the songs for, are from the era in which the doctor was on TV. Right, yeah. So And so, like, for the one of the catchiest, well, the fourth doctor is Pridonian Rhapsody instead of Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> and the... Uh, <clears throat> the uh, seventh doctor is wild, wild vest instead of wild, wild west. Um, <laughs> but in addition to doing the music videos like this, they also do these rap battle videos. And so you'll have like river song doing a rap battle with the master or something. Hmm. And, or the, 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 the fifth and the sixth doctor rap battling each other. Okay. And one of the rap battles they have is ace and rose. And, and so they're, they're, you know, talking trash at each other. I mean, it's, it's not in the, their cussing sense, but you know, they're, they're running down each other as one does in a rap battle and boasting about their own time on the show. And, and as they're tearing into each other, they, they get to a point where they're describing themselves and, and I forget the words they use. But they're in perfect sync. They both say exactly the same thing for like three sentences <laughs> yeah. describing each other. And at that moment, they achieve reconciliation. And there's a pause and Ace yeah. says, oh, and Rose says, awkward. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I wanted to mention, talk about a little, just a second about that idea, the transition from classic who to modern who. I mean, I think the... The biggest leap, and I don't know if we talked about this when we talked about the Eighth Doctor movie, was between the Seventh Doctor and the Eighth Doctor. I mean, the Eighth Doctor mm-hmm. is very much the prototype, new like yeah. New Who. It's very much New Who in style. Uh, so, that, I mean, there's that big leap between what we see, say, in Dragonfire and what we see with the Eighth Doctor. I can imagine fans who had been waiting for the return of the Doctor, especially since Sylvester McCoy shows up in the beginning of that, uh, how that would have felt to them that difference now that i've seen more of the seventh doctor than i did when we talked about the eighth doctor uh, i can imagine that fans seeing that difference it might have been worrisome like uh Mm -hmm. this isn't like what i remember is that good or bad i can imagine one one thing i've noticed um with sylvester mccoy's ear i was going to mention this anyway um so like in dragonfire we have an ice world it's even yep. it, the it's a, a base called ice world that's on a yes. tightly locked planet so one side is perpetually cold and one side is perpetually hot um <clears throat> but it's even though we we're centered in this cold facility where all kinds of things are made out of ice it's called dragon fire and right. so you have this fire ice duality that's ironic 
And one of the things that's characterizes this period in Doctor Who, I think it's down to Andrew Cartmel, who was the script editor at the time. I think he played a big role in this, is the show has become self-consciously ironic and made up to where they're taking on these high concept, ironic things. Like you think about the recent stories we've covered, Paradise Towers. Okay, you've got yeah. this series with the bizarre stuff with the Kangs, these girl gangs with bizarre hair and color coded right. and, and old people who are cannibals and, and militants marching around in this apartment building. Right. And, a paradise towers that is anything but a paradise. Yeah. Right. And then and then you had Delta and the Banner Man, which is this love story for the nineteen fifties and holiday camps, uh, with this alien baby human becoming an alien thing going on and it's just silly and you have lots of silliness and you see that in Dragonfire here too this is a silly runaround with not a lot of sense of plot but it's all on style and that's yeah. really one of the things that characterizes this era of Doctor Who is this self-consciously ironic silly style where mm. the, the visuals are very important and in in this story for example you have this little girl who has barely any lines and she's yeah. an important visual subplot her plot plays out almost entirely visually um i wanted but, to talk about that when we uh -huh. as this which was i felt it was kind of weird this little yeah. girl in this big froofy dress who just wanders in and out of scenes and has absolutely nothing to do with what's really going on and just Sort of there. We we spend scenes looking at this girl walking to a room, hiding under a table, yeah. and then walking out. Yeah. So she does almost nothing to advance the plot, but yeah. she's very cute and she's sweet. And it's it and they're using her as filler. Uh they're yeah. using her to do two things. One of them is filler. So instead of more running around, they're <laughs> yes. they're letting us watch these little vignettes about this little girl. And the second thing it does is it communicates an emotional tone to the audience of we get to watch these sweet little vignettes about this cute little girl in her amazing, froofy, shiny dress. Right. Um, and just visually, you know, the visuals in this story do a lot. And, there, and that's just one example. There are others. We have this uh, milkshake bar scene yep. that is like the cantina bar in Star Wars. Right. We have all these crazy aliens. And one of them, if you're you're watching them in the background, none of them have any lines. They're not main characters, but they they're interesting to look at. And one of them has this kind of I don't know wolf dog werewolf looking little yeah. alien on his lap, and it's a puppet, but it's meant to be like some kind of you know feral alien. And as uh, the doctor's walking out of the room, he leans over to scratch it, and it snaps at him. And I don't even know if that was even in the script, but I was thinking as I was watching, they spent money. To get all of these costumes, these are not off-the-rack BBC period costumes. Right. They made these things to add visual texture to the show. It's one of the interesting things about Doctor Who, because it's so long-running, is each era of the show is reflective of a particular time in how TV storytelling happened. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's the first Doctor is very much a product of how, how that's how TV was in those days. And then the fourth Doctor, the late 70s. and then. The Eighth Doctor is very much a product of the 90s, <laughs> with mm -hmm. that movie. And then even into the new Who, you know, the, the difference between the, the Ninth Doctor at the beginning and, say, the Twelfth Doctor 
just is so different but reflective of the style of 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 TV that we yeah. have in that time period. So it's a, I mean even from a from a sociological standpoint I suppose it's a very interesting program yeah. to watch. You even get elements of broader culture creeping in like the second doctor Patrick Troughton is in the late 60s and he's wearing a beetle mop top haircut. Yes. <laughs> right, right. It's very interesting. All right, so we should probably talk more about <laughs> Dragonfire. Dragon Fire. Yeah. Uh, but I, we're kind of going on because there isn't a whole lot, you know, there's there's a there's a lot of running around, but there's yeah. like you said, it's kind of light on plot. So we, we show up on this ice world. Everything is icy white. There's dry ice, fog everywhere. And what we see is some guys in charge who are all in white wearing World War One era Prussian helmets, you know, the kind yeah. with the spikes on top. And so they're like basically, even though it's World War One, they're basically meant to convey Nazis. They're yeah. militarists there, and they're meant to convey Nazis, which is a frequent trope on this show. But instead of dressing them in black or gray, for once they're in white. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's in, uh, on the on a nice world. Everybody wears white, uh, and it seems you know we get the idea that slaves are being purchased to be frozen and stored as future mercenaries. And right, it, and, and Sabalom Glitz has sold his crew to right. be frozen, and this also we're told it wipes out biographical memory. So yeah. um, you won't remember your past life when you come out of the deep freeze, which right. makes you a willing mercenary. Sort of a zombie mercenary. <laughs> zombie mercenary, yeah. So one of them is doesn't doesn't like this deal. He escapes into the, what they call the restricted zone, where he encounters Mitt Romney. I mean, um, there he encounters a man <laughs> who can reach apparently reach into a vat of liquid nitrogen uh, without harm uh, with a bare hand, and whose touch on the escapee's face will kill him. Uh, his name is Kane, and he is yeah. the guy in charge. And if you do any background reading on the show, you'll quickly find out this character was originally named Hess, um, but they changed his name at the last minute because uh, R Rudolf Hess, the Nazi war criminal, yeah. had just committed suicide. Ooh. And so in prison. And so yeah. um, they they quickly changed the name. But you can imagine how it would have evoked Nazis even more if your right. central villain is named Hess. That's true. Yeah, because Rudolf Hess was not the most famous Nazi, but it's enough of a connection. Like they, they didn't name him Hitler. You know, I mean, that would have yeah. been a little over the top, but interesting. So and then uh, in this restricted zone, there's this disheveled old man, looks like a homeless old man working on an ice sculpture. Uh, and my note is, will it be a leaping dolphin? <laughs> it turns out it won't be, but, <laughs> but you know, it's an ice sculpture. Uh, so that's when this is when we see the Doctor and Mel arrive uh, in the TARDIS. They see it's an ice world, uh, which the Doctor says is a space trading colony on the planet Svartos. Uh, mm -hmm. And they materialize in a mall in the refrigerator section, which is uh, ironic since I just bought a refrigerator. So I, I was really oh. looking forward to them talking about some refrigerators. So. <laughs> And this is where they meet their old friend Sabalom Glitz in a um, in a in a in a milkshake bar. In a, yes, they go to a milkshake bar. Uh, who who is like who was he before? How did they meet him? Uh, like we haven't talked about him on the show yet. Yeah, so he came in originally in the first story of Colin Baker's Trial of a Time Lord series, if I recall correctly. He is basically a far future space pirate kind of guy. Okay, uh, and hence hence you know, uh, like Han Solo. Right. But he is meant to have likable qualities, so he's, like, meant to be kind of Han Solo, but he ends up coming off more as Harry Mudd. Right, and, you know, with very bad ethics, given that he sold his crew into slavery, that that's, makes yeah. him a little less likable. 
Exactly. And Ace is totally down on him when we meet Ace. Yeah. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Yeah. But Mel, who knows Sabalom Glitz, is not nearly as down on him for some reason. Inexplicably, right. she's like, oh, he's okay underneath. <laughs> yeah. and it's like, yeah. he sold his crew to have their to be frozen and put into slavery and have their brains wiped. Right. Well, to be fair, I'm not sure he realized that their brains would be wiped, yeah. but nevertheless, uh, he did sell them into slavery. Uh, yeah. And was Mel there there in that first time with Colin Baker's t- Trial of the Time Lord? Mel, yeah, she came in during the Trial of the Time Lord. For, it's a set of four stories, and she came yeah. in during that time. And unlike any other companion in the classic era except Susan, she has no origin story. We never learn on screen how she met the doctor. She's just oh. there. And huh. and uh, that was a deliberate choice. They were going to go back and fill that in in Colin Baker's next season, and they didn't. So actually, Mel is kind of a proto River Song. Oh yeah. In that in that she she her her meeting the Doctor is like out of temporal order on the show. Right. Um, and Big Finish though did go ahead and do a Mel meets the Doctor for the first time thing and make it sufficiently timey wimey. Okay. All right. Uh, so, meanwhile, the waitress in the milkshake bar that's waiting on Sebalon Glitz and clearly does not like him. Stroppy waitress. Yeah. <laughs> yeah is Ace. A- Ace is the prototypical, like, talks back at your waitress, uh, like uh, Flo from the Alice's Restaurant, which. Yeah, only has Flo really is 16 dated years old. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, now I've really dated myself. So, uh, mm-hmm. it turns out that Sabalon owes 100 crowns, whatever unit of currency. Uh, because he swindled someone and then lost that money, and the money he got for selling his crew, uh, who was being frozen, we saw being frozen earlier. So this is very complicated. So basically, Sabalon Glitz owes money to the guy in charge, and they're going to um, take hit take his ship as collateral until he turns he, he shows up with the money within uh, what forty eight hours or something like that. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, so Ace. Tells the doctor and Mel about and, this, and and Jabba the Hutt wants to see him. <laughs> yes, yes. There's a clear Han Solo thing they're working on here. Uh, so Ace tells the doctor and Mel about a dragon, like this it comes out of nowhere. A dragon who lives in the tunnels below the city, uh, who's guarding a treasure. Um, and turn, and then it turns out that of course Sabalon Glitz has a treasure map, and then we find out that Kane put a tracking device in the treasure map so they can follow Sabalon, which I'm not sure it's kind of jumping ahead. Is this mm-hmm. because they, they think that Sabalon will lead them to the thing, to the, to the treasure that, yeah. that, <laughs> sorry. To Yavin four. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically Kane wants to use Sabalon to find the treasure. We'll later learn that Kane has been on this planet for 3000 years and he needs the treasure to get off of it. Right. And he's um, finally figured out a way to get it. Yeah. Okay. Also, we should mention how Ace got here because we're in the far future on another planet. Yeah. And Ace is from 20th century Paravale. And it, she has this bizarre backstory. Now, first of all, she, Ace is not her real name, it's her nickname. Yeah. Um, they never on screen establish her last name, but in this episode, she tells us that uh, her name is Dorothy. Yes. Later on, uh, in, in the backstory that they wrote for her, her name was meant to be Dorothy Gale. 
as in Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz. Right. And so Ace was whipping up some Nitro 9 or something in her room back in Paravale and whipped up a time storm that blew her into this far future world. <laughs> later, <clears throat> later, we will learn that is not the case. That is her perception of what happened. Oh. Actually, a very sinister force from the dawn of time was responsible for the time storm that brought her here, and Ace is a pawn in a much larger four-dimensional chess game. Oh, um, But she's called Ace because she hates the name Dorothy, and <clears throat> because Ace is her catchphrase And yeah. so, at this point. So whenever something good happens, she'll either say Mega or she'll say Ace, and that's what everybody calls her. Fortunately, they drop that pretty quick because the the constant aces are really annoying, and that's really only in this story, I believe. It feels very forced whenever she does it. Like, it just feels not at all natural. Well, Glitz, being a a pirate and uh, apparently a rogue who will sell his crew, uh, is also chivalrous because he insists that only he and the doctor can go explore the, the tunnels looking for the dragon's treasure because it's too dangerous for the women. Uh, yeah, which which, is, which then prompts Ace to call Sablom Glitz a male chauvinist bilge bag. <laughs> yes. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kane reminds his lieutenant uh, that he o- owns her uh, when when because she asks for Glitz's spacecraft, like because they're going to take it from him, and apparently she wants to leave, and he says, "No, no, I own you." Uh, li- I guess literally uh, because she has this mark, mark on her hand. We'll find out what that is about uh, in a few minutes. Um, and then this uh, the the mother of that little girl we were talking about shows up in the uh, in, in the milkshake bar, and uh, she acts like a Karen. Uh, now I say that because a, that's that's a an internet meme thing. A Karen okay. is a is a term for uh, an, a very entitled person of a particular oh. class. Um, do you know the origin of that? Uh, it has to do with I think one of these uh, Facebook videos or YouTube videos or of a woman who was very angry at some people, homeless person, I think, or something like that, who happened to be outside her building, perfectly legally, perfectly within their rights to be there. But she was so angry and she called the police and ended up mm. being exposed on social media as being sort of an entitled rich person jerk. So, okay. Uh, so I think that's where that comes from. But uh, she's this woman is like that. She's an, an entitled mother who thinks her yeah. little child is the perfect thing and gets all angry. She doesn't like her milkshake with lumps. It's just like, so even even though it's explained that it's supposed to be that way, that's the ice cream. Now, this is not true in American restaurants. You order a milkshake, you're going to get something that's perfectly smoothly consistent. Right. That has been processed. Right. Um, Maybe two million years when they when they have milkshakes, they'll be lumpy. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But the homemade variety would be lumpy. Yeah. So uh, Ace does what what you and I would do, which is dump a milkshake on the entitled woman's head. This uh, is not what I would do. This is uh, this really <laughs> felt weak to me because yeah. this is a not the way to keep your job and b not good for business. I mean, well, I have a really surprised. strong the, cust- the yeah. customer is always right thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, she seems surprised that she gets fired by the owner for this. Like, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll come back later and you know do what. Yeah. No, you're fired for dumping this on a customer. Like. Mm. So when she's fired, she dumps another milkshake on her boss who fired her. Uh, uh, yeah, Ace uh, is very much a headstrong 16-year-old here, I think. Yeah, uh, Katie Kaboom. So, <laughs> so 
uh, back to Kane. Kane's ice sculpture is uh, is nearly finished. It's not a dolphin, alas. Uh, it's it. It's a weird looking woman. Yes, it's yeah. At first, I thought it was a sculpture of himself. I mean, it's not all that much like not all that realistic. It's pretty like he gets all excited at uh, at one point that it looks exactly like the woman, his love of his life that he lost. Uh, and I'm like, this that could could be pretty much any human being yeah. <laughs> in that sculpture. Um, he's he also got has, a real Mister Freeze thing going on here. Yes, he does. He also has a pipe organ because you know he's a bad guy, um, mm-hmm. and bad guys have pipe organs. Uh, Mel and Ace go to uh, Ace's rooms where Mel discovers that Ace is from Earth, and uh, Ace thinks that she accidentally blew herself to Ice World uh, using her Nitro Nine, a, a concoction that she whipped up, which is a it's more explosive than nitroglycerin, which would be pretty darn explosive. Um, yeah. You know, something about the nitroglycerin, which is nitroglycerin was a, a a prop, a trope in TV shows for a period of time. Yeah. And now it no longer is. No one ever talks about it. Uh, have you ever well, noticed that? Yeah. We have other explosives now that have become used. I mean, nitroglycerin is sort of an old school explosive that was invented early on. Right. Um, it also has other uses, like it was used as a heart medicine yes. uh, frequently. Yeah. Um. But um. But these days, if you if you find references to explosives, they tend to be other things like C four. Right. Um. I think one of the reasons for that. I mean, it reflects the real world transition away from using dynamite. I mean, dynamite was also a thing, and you almost never see dynamite as a trope anymore. That's true. Um. Dynamite and nitroglycerin were early explosives, and they because they were early, I believe they were also more dangerous. Right. And like you drop them the wrong way or, you know, certainly nitroglycerin gets on. Yeah. yeah. And then they go off. And so we now have other explosives that are more powerful and safer that you have to have like something really particular to set it off. It won't go off just because you drop it. Right. So that's another one that is interesting that the show evolves through the time periods that they have this. Uh, So we have a station announcer that like from the Ice World City station who keeps announcing things. And we keep hearing this announcement in the background asking for someone from emergency services to go to the upper docking bay for an ice jam, I think it is. Mm-hmm. And we we don't get a resolution right away. I thought that was sort of an interesting technique that they had, just to have it in the background. Uh, mm-hmm. But so at, at this point, Ace decides to go take care of the ice jam herself with some of her homemade nitroglycerin. I'm not sure why she thinks this is something she needs to do, but she I guess Maybe she's bored. Maybe to stop the announcement. <laughs> Maybe. Um, By the way, Nitro Nine is going to stay with us. the The catchphrase Ace is going to diminish, but yeah. Nitro Nine is going to stick. The doctor will strictly forbid her to carry Nitro Nine, and yeah. then ask her if she has any when they're in trouble. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay. Uh, bad t- parenting technique. So <laughs> yeah, he kind of winks at the Nitro Nine thing. Yes. Uh, so Kane's henchwoman that we was talking to before, her name is Balaj. Uh, she's at she. We see her at a console that looks an awful lot like a TARDIS console. I don't know if you know. It does. That. It <laughs> really does. And she counteracts Kane's order regarding the 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 spaceship, uh, uh, Sabalon Glitz's spaceship. He had ordered it destroyed, and she counteracts it. So you can see that there's beginning to be cracks in his uh, structure of his henchmen who follow him. So this, yeah. so that's there. And we should mention Kane is a really over the top, and this is part of the ironic self-aware style of this era kane is a totally over the top scene chewing villain yes i mean he's talking 
to one of his henchmen about the people he's freezing that are going to be brain wiped. And he's, he's saying things like, you know, oh, as I build my army, my power will be absolute. <laughs> and it's like he wants approval. He's saying that to someone's face. Right. You know, and wanting them to admire the fact his power will be absolute. And and he uh, the uh, something we should mention is, is he has to live he is he is Mr. Freeze so he has to live in cold temperatures and he occasionally goes into this chamber which descends to like minus 200 degrees Celsius or something yeah um to 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 survive and he and he can't go above a certain temperature so that that's an important uh, factor here um and this is that's when Balage and his other henchmen they start Can't, doing their own thing when he's right. in, incapacitated. So meanwhile, um, Ace and Mel go to blast open the ice jam door with her Nitro 9. Uh, so they take care of that. The Doctor and Glitz are wandering around in the tunnels, and they find something like the, the, the map that Glitz had. It has like these locations on it. One of them is called the Forest of Singing Trees. And they find the singing trees, which are really vibrating stalactites and stalagmites. And the doctor mm-hmm. discovers that it's all really actually fake, that there's electronics inside of things. So that's going to be important. Mm-hmm. Mel and Ace get arrested by Bellage, Um, And Kane tells Ace that he's building a mercenary army. And rather than try to freeze her and wipe her brain, he tries to recruit her. So he's got two types of henchmen. He's got the zombie soldiers. And then he's got the ones like Bellage and this other guy, Krakauer, who are sort of the mid-level management. And he tries to recruit her. By offering her a gold coin that is so obviously intensely cold uh, that he ex- expects her to pick it up in her, in her palm and scar her hand like Balaj did, which apparently makes her a slave. Yeah, and this is and this is such a weird sequence um, because he's talking to Ace and he's hypnotizing her, right? And and Mel is in the background screaming, "No, no, no, don't do it!" But he's like in, enticing her, and he's clear clearly he's meant to have some kind of psychic influence. Over over right. Ace that is tempting her to reach for that coin that's gonna is so cold it's gonna burn his mark into her hand and make her his slave forever and it's like this vampire thing going on can we come in you know <laughs> yeah. um and it's, you just touch that coin and you're doomed forever and I was going what is up with this I mean <laughs> is he an eternal or something because right. suddenly we've taken this turn into the paranormal. And yeah. and I looked, and so I, I hadn't seen this story in a long time, so I went and I looked it up, and nope, he's not an eternal. He's just a 3,000-year-old criminal. But apparently one with with hypnotic abilities, which, okay, the master has those, but then he still has this mystical coin slave thing going <laughs> right. on. They never explain why, that, why the coin has any power, or the mark of the coin has any power over people. Uh, also... Who picks up coins with their palm? You pick it up with your fingers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'll be, so you'll have mark on your fingertips. Yeah. Your fingertips will be frostbitten, but uh, that's about it. In the end, Ace looks like she's reaching for it, but then she yeah. slaps it out of the way and defies Kane. Right. She brandishes a deodorant can full of nitroglycerin at him, yeah. uh, and they uh, escape, uh, Ace and Mel. Uh, meanwhile, the Doctor and Glitz have been separated. So we have companion separation here, uh, this part, of course. Uh, the doctor, for some reason, and this I've heard people talk about this before. For oh, some this, reason, yeah. the doctor comes to this chasm with a railing. He right. climbs over the railing and hangs from his umbrella for no apparent reason. Right. This is the this is this is uh, 
considered the worst cliffhanger in Doctor Who history. Um, because <laughs> right, this is the end of the first episode. Cliffhanger. Yeah. So, so notice that this is part of the ironic self-aware thing. We're making a cliffhanger out of a literal cliffhanger. He is yes. hanging off of a cliff. And the real reason this is so bad, I mean, it, it would have been, it was meant, I guess, as an ironic wink to the audience. Um, but the uh, the reason it's so bad is because of poorly executed set design. Uh, the Doctor and Sabalom Glitz have been following this treasure map, and it was meant to be written in such a way, or it was meant to be visualized in such a way that the, when the Doctor comes to the cliff, he's like in this narrow tunnel. And if he's going to go forward, he has no alternative but to scale down the cliff, which then generates the danger. Right. But instead of visually realizing it as he's at the end of a tunnel and has to go down this cliff if he's going to go forward, he they they visualize it as like just a big wide ledge yeah. that has a safety rail. And he <laughs> instead of walking down the ledge one direction or the other, he for some reason decides to climb over the safety rail and hang from it by his umbrella. Right. And 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 that makes no sense in context. Right, and and because at the next episode, when when Sablon Glitz finds him, he's he goes down under the doctor and helps him lower down. Like yeah, so all the doctor has to do is let go of the umbrella and drop about six feet, and he'd be fine. Right, and we also see inconsistent things. We get a, a POV shot of the doctor looking down, and it looks like there's this enormous Grand Canyon like chasm under him. Right, and he would fall to his death. But then Sabalom is like six feet under him, so I can only infer there must be another ledge down there that right. Sabalom and he are standing on. And then later on, you know, Mel and Ace will show up. It's yeah, it this was a low point, so to speak, for for Doctor Who here. This was a like in implausible things. This was up there. Uh, and meanwhile, Ace and Mel have wandered into the tunnels below the city, and just as Ace says, "There's no such thing as a dragon." Well, of course, the dragon shows up <laughs> and uh, menaces them. And the dragon looks a lot like the alien from the movie Aliens, I have to yeah, say. Yeah, and there are clear references. In fact, the the second part of that series, Aliens, came out the same year as this. So there okay. are conscious running through tunnels on a bug hunt references that are meant to evoke alien. Um, I thought that the design of the dragon, which really looks like an ectomorph or ex whatever it is from Alien, yeah. a xenomorph, I thought it was really well done for the budget they had. Oh, yeah. A and it looks creepy, but and it also is kind of cute. It has this seahorse-like mouth. Um, so mm. its head looks – it's not as scary as – I mean, it is scary in profile, but it's also kind of cute, which – is nice visually because it um, is actually not a danger. We will learn. Right. It's actually friendly. It's on a on a. It's got. It's a good guy. It just is perceived as as evil, and partly because it fires laser beams from its eyes at people if it is if it thinks it needs to. Yes, and that's why they Ace and Mel conclude that it must be art an artificial. Uh, creation as opposed to a living creature because living creatures don't generally shoot laser beams out of their eyes. In this uh, episode. Yeah, yes. Kryptonians uh, do. Yeah. Maximites. Well, that's true. Yes. Uh, well, bad reasoning for Ace and Mel then. Uh, so now Kane reanimates his, uh, Glitz's now glittery mind-wiped crew to hunt him and the, the ladies down. Um, 
And then, so they Nitro Nine them. Yes, right. Well, eventually Nitro Nine them. Glitz, meanwhile, wants to give up the hunt for the treasure and convinces the Doctor to help him steal back his ship. And and and, and this is another point in the episode where we have a logic problem because the Doctor and Glitz have been going deeper and deeper into Ice World. His ship is up on the surface, right? And they've been going deeper and deeper into these lower levels, and suddenly they're back up on the surface in Sabalom's ship without running into Mel and Ace on the way back up. Right, because Mel and Ace are going down. Up. Yeah. yeah. Right. It, yeah. Which the, and apparently you don't need the treasure map to find your way down there either, because uh, Mel and Ace do a pretty good job of finding their way down without it. Uh, yeah. They, they figure out how to get down the chasm wall where the, the doctor left his umbrella, uh, because Ace has a scaling ladder in her backpack. Yep. Is Ace one is gonna like? Is she constantly going to have just the right thing in her backpack all the time as we go forward? I don't know that she is always going to have the right thing, but she is very inventive and capable. Like okay. she is the only person in Doctor Who history to take out a Dalek with a baseball bat. <laughs> okay, that's good. I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, I, I'm still left wondering how did Glitz get down to the lower level to to save the Doctor? So. Um, I know they don't cover that either. Yeah, so back- I do. I do like the movable styrofoam ice boulders they have, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, back at the uh, where where uh, Sabalon Glitz's ship is, uh, the Doctor has to distract the guard while Glitz sneaks into his ship, and the Doctor starts with this this philosophical statement, obviously designed to baffle the guard, but instead instead. The guard is some kind of philosophical uh, savant because he gets yeah. into it. <laughs> Just to give you a sense of this, I, I was so taken by this dialogue, I, I copied it into my notes from a transcript uh, that's online. The doctor walks up to the guard and says, excuse me, what's your attitude towards the nature of existence? For example, do you hold any strong theological opinions? <laughs> and and the guard says, I think you'll find most educated people regard mythical convictions as fundamentally animistic. Which actually kind of makes some sense. I mean, it at least scans logically whether you buy it or not is another thing, but it actually right. is sort of intelligible. And the doctor says, I see. That's a very interesting concept. And then the guard volunteers more and says, personally, I find most experiences border on the existential. At which point we go off into critical la-la land <laughs> with the doctor saying, well, how do you reconcile that with the empirical critical belief that experience is at the root of all phenomena? Which is just meaningless, you know, academic technobabble. Yeah. Um, and it may be lifted from a book that the writer consulted to get up to speed on Doctor Who called Doctor Who, The Unfolding Text. Oh, which really? Which is a, a critical literary theory book about Doctor Who, or at least it has some of that in it. Um, and the guard says, I think you'll find a concept can be philosophically valid, even if theologically meaningless. <laughs> and the doctor says, so what you're saying is that before Plato existed, someone had to have the idea of Plato. And Which, at that, is, that, is this that not a non sequitur there? Like, well, it's a play on the fact that Plato has this theory of forms that's sometimes called the theory of ideas that everything in the real world is a sort of imitation copy of a prototype that's ideal and exists in in this other world that uh, is better than ours. So like right. there's an ideal horse and an ideal table and right. apparently an ideal Plato. <laughs> right. um, and And then the guard says, oh, you have no idea what a relief it is for me to have such a stimulating philosophical discussion. 
There are so few intellectuals about these days. Tell me, what do you think of the assertion that the semiotic thickness of a performed text varies according to the redundancy of the auxiliary performance codes? And that, I think, is a line that's taken from Doctor Who, the unfolding text. (laughs) And instead of answering the question, what does he think of this? The doctor says, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's just so funny to have the doctor sort of encounter someone like he's he's just he's intended to baffle this guy into, you know, being so distracted that the other guy that glitz gets behind him. But instead, it, the guy gets into it. And that's it. I, I do enjoy that part, that that funny yeah. little um, unexpected moment for the doctor. There, well, there's a great little follow on to that where they get in, they get on board the Nosferatu glitz's ship and uh, Bellage, the henchwoman, comes in and says to uh, the doctor and Sabalom, what are you doing here? And the doctor says, that's a very difficult question. Why is everyone around here so preoccupied with metaphysics? <laughs> yes. And well, it would have been better if she says, why are you here? Yes. Instead of what are you doing here? That would have conveyed metaphysics better. Um, but Glitz says, I think she's going to kill us, doctor. And the doctor says, ah, an existentialist. <laughs> it's a, a, a fun philosophical uh, interlude here. And and so meanwhile on board right on board Glitz's ship we find also that he's got a uh, a Stradivarius violin and a Dutch master among his loot his uh, his hoard of things a, a painting has. not a cigar uh, yes <laughs> I should be clear on that Bellage gets the drop on Glitz but then he gets it back on her he gets the gun away from her but the doctor won't let him skip out on his debt to Kane for whatever reason. Uh, there's some ethical reason that the doctor wants him to pay back his debt to the evil guy, yeah. uh, which makes everything more difficult for everybody, but okay. Uh, meanwhile, Ace and Mel are being chased by the ice zombies, the, uh, Glitz's old crew who's now zombie mercenaries. Um, and then the, the ice sculptor has finished his, uh, sculpture of the, uh, of Kane's lost love. And like all evil geniuses, he kills the man who'd created it. Uh, for him so that no one else will ever have seen it, I guess. Yeah, but it's enough that it exists, so you should take pride in what you've done, Sculptor. Yes, as I kill you. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, the Doctor and Glitz stumble on the dragon, or the dragon fire. The dragon, so there's the dragon, and then inside the dragon is the dragon fire, which is a crystal, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a crystal in there that generates electricity or something, and it powers the dragon, maybe, and it also is um, the treasure. Right. Now, what what I'm a little unclear on is, is the dragon, because we see inside its head, and there's computer stuff there, and I don't see a brain, so I don't know if we're meant to think the dragon is just a robot, or if the dragon is like a cyborg. Interesting. I kind of got the feeling it was like a robot, but yeah, you're right. I kind of got cyborg, but I'm not sure. Hmm. Well, when the doctor throws away Glitz's gun, the dragon stops advancing menacingly on them and becomes their friend. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Ace tells Mel at at this point when we see them that she's always felt like she was from somewhere else, that she was from another planet, and that her real name is Dorothy. Is this going to come out more on Ace in the future that it turns out she's not really from Earth? No, she is really from Earth, but she is a uh, – we'll learn more about her family. She does not get along with her her, her parents, as we learn in this episode. Yeah. Um, she, she is from Earth. She's descended from people who came over to England from 
the from Scandinavia. She has Viking ancestors. Okay. But there is this weird backstory for her that will eventually come out that she's a pawn in this much larger chess game that stretches over eternity. And um, that's responsible for a lot of the weird things in her life. Okay. Uh, so Blush, oh, by the way, I, yeah. I, I meant to mention her. Um, they eventually, in Big Finish, establish her last name as McShane. Okay. So she's Dorothy McShane. And then to reconcile that with the fact she sometimes gets called Dorothy Gale, they uh, rationalize her full name is Dorothy Gale McShane. So her parents apparently were big Wizard of Oz fans. <laughs> Little did they know. So uh, Balazs is, is uh, plotting along with another Kane henchman uh, by the name of Krakauer, played by Tony Asoba, who has previously been in uh, uh, Doctor Who. He was in uh, he was in Destiny of the Daleks, which is a fourth Doctor story uh, with the Doctor Robata. Uh, he was named Lan. He was also in Kill the Moon, one of my least favorite episodes. Yeah, ever. Uh, he played a character named Duke. Uh, mm. Duke was. Let's see. I'm just, he was an uh, a member of the mission to find out why the Earth's moon had become unstable. Um, mm. He was an astronaut, so uh, uh, I will won't rewatch it to see him. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, just interesting to see uh, him showing up again. Uh, mm-hmm. The the Doctor Mel Ace and Glitz all meet up and they encounter a zombie who. Apparently, the brain wipe does, didn't wipe out all memory of Glitz. The, the brain wipe doesn't work for, like, really intensely strong emotions like hatred. And yeah, so this guy really hated gl- Glitz and thus can remember him. <laughs> yes, which uh, makes everything better. The, it turns out the dragon is friendly and saves them from the zombies. Uh, the the uh, Krakauer, ha- um, me- uh, meanwhile, and Blage have turned up the heat on Kane, literally, while mm-hmm. he was in his pod. Uh, to the melt past the melting point, uh, which melts the ice statue, and oh, Kane, you silly man! Because you killed the only man who could carve the picture of your your lost love into ice, uh, you now can no longer recover this st- uh, ice statue that is melted. Um, and Krakauer conveniently stands by, waiting for Kane to wake up and kill him in a rage, um, and turn the heat back down again. The dragon reveals that the singing trees are actually an archive, a kind of library of holograms. Uh, a la and, and, Superman's Fortress of Solitude. And he shows him a file that is of this ancient woman from apparently 3,000 years ago explaining that Cain and his lover were these criminal people on their homeworld, Proamon. Um, and the woman committed suicide rather than be caught, but Cain didn't. And so he's been exiled here to Svartos. Because right. it's tidally locked, and so the uh, dark side is always going to be cold enough for him to live here. And so that's why he's here. Um, the But he wants to get back to Svartos. And, yes. And, uh, no, to Svartos. I'm mean, sorry, to Pro-Ammon. Pro-Ammon. And the doctor ends up seeing some star maps that the dragon has and realizes these are way out of date. Right. And he's never going home. And so the doctor decides I need to I need to convince um Kane that he can never go home because the star maps reveal something. They're out of date. Yeah. And he's never going to be able to go home. Um the uh so that becomes the kind of central organizing principle of the plot thread for the rest of this. You have other stuff happening. Kane 
unleashes his mercenaries on the people in the base. They kill a bunch of them. Others flee into the Nosferatu, mm-hmm. which then takes off. But Sabalam isn't able to get back on board, so he's crushed at seeing his own ship fly off without him. But it's a good thing he's not on it <laughs> yeah. because Cain causes it to blow up. Right. And so Sabalam would have died if he had been on the Nosferatu. He, he basically kills almost the entire population of Iceworld. Yeah, except a little girl and her snooty mother. Yeah, which they survived. <laughs> um, the, uh, meanwhile, we have a couple of guards who are having their own personal version of Alien. <laughs> and they're down hunt, the dragon. Hunt, yeah. Hunting down the dragon. Um, and they manage to kill the dragon. And they uh, sever its head because Cain told them to bring the head, which is where the treasure is. And the head opens up, and as a final defense reaction, the dragonfire crystal zaps them both dead. Right. Uh, but then the doctor and Mel get the crystal and end up taking it to Kane. And they actually, and because, the doctor is. Well, mm-hmm. Kane had taken Ace prisoner. Right. And that's right. they were going to trade the crystal for Ace. For Ace. But Mel is, and this is just bad cliche writing, but Mel is having an attack of conscience that. We can't give him the crystal, Doctor. It's what he wants. And she's over the top about that. Right. And it's like, the doctor tells you to give him the crystal. Give him the crystal. Right. The doctor's so, got a plan. <laughs> yeah. So so eventually, they give him the crystal. They put it in his, uh, in, in his TARDIS-looking console, and it powers up the system. Turns out Ice World, the, the trading station, is actually a spaceship. Yep. And so its drive is powering up, it can now fly, and its navigational equipment is all functional. And the doctor uses that to show Kane that Proamon, because he's been here for 3,000 years, those star charts are out of date, a thousand years after he left, Proamon's son went supernova and destroyed all of its planets. There is no Proamon anymore. He can't go home. Mm-hmm. And this is a crushing realization for Kane. so he walks up to a window and turns off the sunlight filter so he gets unfiltered sunlight which is really bright and it heats him up and his face melts just like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> That's what I said. He commits suicide by sunburn and, yeah. and 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 melts like wax in the in the heat. One of the things I wanted to talk about was this idea of like this overly elaborate prison that is constructed by the people of Proem and rather than yeah. just, you know, shove him in a hole, you know, and leave him there. We're going to put you on this world and then we're going to put the means for your escape there with you, guarded by this creature. And since you are, you will live for millennia, we'll give you plenty of time to come up with a plot to get it back. Like, I, I, this is a, such a weird, yeah. overly elaborate scheme. Uh, but it, Historically, exile is has been used extensively. I mean, it was very common in the Roman world. If you had someone, yeah. you didn't want to kill him because there were no prisons at the time. You didn't want to kill him. You'd say, okay, you, you got to go to this island and stay there. Right. And, well, I get the exile part. It's the giving him the means yeah. for escape. I, I would assume that this is not part of Pro Ammon's ordinary trade routes. And so they like sent a ship here with him and the dragon and meant to maroon it there forever. Right. And over 3,000 years, Kane has maybe managed to repair it or something. Yeah, well, but it is it is overly elaborate, but it looks cool. You have when we finally see the spaceship flying through space, it has these like metal girders. It's shaped kind of like a five pointed star or something. Yeah. And it's got crystal in the big metal structures and it looks it looks neat. Yep. So then we have uh, the cane is defeated. You know, the the regular plot is done. 
But we have the departure of Mel. And and I think uh, you or Father Corey have mentioned this as a very yeah. strange circumstance here where Mel suddenly out of the blue just decides she's leaving. Right. There's been no setup for this. And she just says, oh, I think it's time to go, doctor. And he witters on with this speech about time that <laughs> makes little sense. Yeah. Um. Now, the classic thing to get rid of a female companion in Doctor Who in the classic era is they fall in love with someone and leave. That doesn't happen every time. It didn't happen to Sarah Jane Smith. It didn't happen to Zoe. But it did happen to other people like Leela, for example. Yep. Um, and, and it's definitely one of the ways to get rid of female companions. It even happens in the new era, sort of with Martha, Yeah, you know, because she realizes the doctor isn't going for me. So I'm going to move on and find somebody, which she does. Um, the here, I had always read this as Mel has fallen in love with Savalom Glitz. Yeah. Because she suddenly wants to go travel with him. Watching it this time, I was you know, counting, okay, how many lines of dialogue do they actually exchange with each other? And it's like zero. Yeah. I mean, they're in some scenes together, but they never have a conversation and talk to each other, much less do we have any flirting or anything between them. So it seems to really come out of nowhere. Now, watching her actual departure scene, it's it's less clear to me, it's it's not clear to me that the writers meant her to have fallen in love with him. I don't think it's she's, there at all, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she's just going, she's going to go on adventures, but for some idiotic reason, she wants to have them with this immoral, uh, psychopathic pirate from the future. And the doctor is like, oh, you can keep him on the straight and narrow, playing into his lovable Harry Mudd side. Yeah. Um, but at... at the way I read it in light of previous Doctor Who history, I thought we have an out-of-nowhere romance. And I think a lot of fans have taken it that way because that's mm. one of the things we're used to seeing on this show. And it kind of fits that, even though if you study it closely, you don't find overt romance here. But you don't find overt anything because she and Sabalom Glitz never talk to each other. Right. And so there's no basis whether for either for romance or for wanting to go off with this guy and have adventures with him. There's no setup at all for Mel a reason for Mel to stop traveling with the doctor. There's like nothing. It's like if if it had ended at you know the the previous scene, that would have been the a, a perfectly good end. They kind of tacked this on here and it's just someone decided it's time for Mel to leave and just write something for her to go. And that yeah. was it. They didn't make any attempt at really making a fit. So, um, all right. So, goodbye, Mel. Uh, hello, Ace. Ace is now going to travel with the Doctor. Yeah. And uh, and Ace yeah. is really the Seventh Doctor's definitive companion. She is awesome. I love Ace. She's great. Okay. I'm looking forward to seeing more from her uh, on this then. Uh, and then we end with, uh, like we said before, the little the woman, the mother finding the little girl who's been running around. Uh, she was about to go into the TARDIS just before it dematerialized and become an unintentional companion. So, like Tegan. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, so any other notes on this one, Jimmy? Uh, anything nope. left unsaid? So, nope, uh, that's it. I think it's a fun runaround. I'm glad it's only three episodes. It doesn't make yeah. a lot of sense, but it's fun and stylish, which is what the show was trying to be at this time. Right, right. It it fits with the with the style of the time. Uh, all right, so we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, uh, including this week uh, Joshua G., John S., uh, Wojciech D., Rebecca S., and Gabe S. 
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. That's it from us. What did you think of Dragonfire, this seventh Doctor story? You can let us know by going to sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or you can send us an email to Who at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 10th Doctor story, The Unicorn and the Wasp. Until then, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for joining me in sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, I think you'll find that a concept can be philosophically valid even if theologically meaningless. Right. This is going to be fun.